Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 43 for the week of April 20th, 2014. On this week's show, learn about how a virus one one thousandth the size of a human cell can turn your insides into a liquid pool of death. We're talking about the Ebola virus, of course. But before we move on, I want to introduce our wonderful co-host. We've got a full compliment today. If this is your first show, if this is your first time tuning in, which you may be if you heard about us on the Sagebrush, welcome and listen to who we got here. We have Dr. Dale Jackson. He's a PhD in biomedical engineering. What's up? <laughs> he apparently been hit in the head with a tack hammer recently <laughs> and is a little slow tonight. We have Carolina Balkenbush. She is a former UNR student and now a registered dietitian out of Las Vegas, Nevada. Hello. Hello. And there are two more of us, Christian Copley-Salem. I count as three. That's, that sounds like three. That's totally three. Two yeah. more of us, I'll have you know. There's a Christian Copley-Salem. <laughs> there's, there's Christian. Uh, and Scott Barnett, that's me. We are Ooh. both PhD candidates in cell molecular pharmacology and physiology. Long title. Never finishing. Never, Never finishing. Graduate. At, we, if we listen to your advice, maybe we would. At the University of Nevada, Reno. So, that's us. Yay. Go team. Yay. Um, Go team. Yep. Uh, someone on our Facebook page, which, if you're listening, is facebook.com slash beta sandwich podcast. Um, Aaron Miller. Always puts really cool stuff up on the site. I just wanted to do a quick... He did a quick little ping about something we talked about before. On episode 30, on a back-of-the-box segment, I talked about Trixolin which I called Triskelin, and Christian, who is apparently an expert on this, had no idea what I was talking about when I said Triskelin, <laughs> but Trixolin, he knew everything about. <laughs> so Trix, sorry, I'm still still a little bitter about that. Uh, <laughs> Trixolin, if you recall, it has these. Uh, it is a it is an antibiotic that is completely ubiquitous. Uh, it's in soaps. If you've ever had an antimicrobial soap, it's in that. It's all over the environment. It's in everything. It's in hospital environments. It's in carpets. It's in toothpaste. It, you you find it all over the place. We found out that well, we we did an article on how they had uh, it has endocrine like effects, which is not good. Your endocrine system very tightly balanced in your body but Aaron pointed out an article where uh microbiologist Blase which I'm calling it maybe Blaze I would call him Blase Bowles his name was Blase Bowles that's really his name from the huh. University of Michigan Ann Ar- Arbor he found out that triskelin actually in addition to the endocrine like effects tends to coagulate and get caught up in your nose and your snot this ironically, despite being an antimicrobial, it actually increases the density and the, it's like a growth medium for uh, Staphylococcus. (laughs) So Staphylococcus grows better in this antimicrobial than it does in your snot by itself. So just another nail in the coffin, Triskelin's probably not the greatest thing on the planet, but it will probably take us 20 years to get out of everything we have. So that's all I have to say there. Awesome. What did everyone do this week? Anything fun? No. <laughs> Christian, will you fill us in on your trip? Yeah, we you, haven't talked Christian. To you in like a month. You, yeah, we haven't. Oh. It's been like a month. Where did you go, Christian? Why haven't you been here? That's weird. I was, um, I was in Italy, and it was interesting because I've never left the country before, um, unless you count like going to Louisiana as leaving the country. But um, honestly, the cult, and I only say that because the culture shock for me was the same in both places. I was born in California. I am very West Coast. Like every part of my being and my makeup is oriented towards the way West Coast people's body language works and the way they talk and the way they act towards each other. You're pure Snoop Dogg. <laughs> seriously, totally. seriously. Louisiana was a shock just because they there's a very different body language thing going on and I don't understand anything about what's going on there. And Italy was exactly the same way for me. Um, everyone was seemed really rude but they were that way to each other and they didn't like get mad about it so i had to assume that it was me and not them it it might Um, have been a little of both it it could have been but i mean everybody that you that you interacted with had some of these similar body language mechanisms going on even when they were being as polite as possible 
So I feel like it was probably my. It's always like they're yelling at there. They're like, "Bellissima, cool, me, You're like, "Okay, no, oh, that's where the water fountain is." Thank you. We, okay, by the way, there are no water fountains in Italy. And <laughs> don't, I don't don't I, tell the story. Don't. No, it's funny, <laughs> but but there is no water fountains in Italy, and there's no water fountains in France either. When you ask for a water fountain, they don't know what you're talking. They about. They give you wine. Yeah, basically, yeah. Um, but no, I we went to the Colosseum. Um, we went to the Pantheon, Trevi Fountain, um, all the check on the boxes. Florence. How, so, how was the conference? You were there for science, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so we were there for nine days and at the conference for about three hours. And um, <laughs> <laughs> what we did is we went to see people who talked about things we wanted to hear about. Um, you didn't so get to present your research? We did. We did a poster session. Um, that was an hour and a half of the three hours we were there. Um, but basically, we did a poster session, then we listened to people talk. Um, I learned an interesting thing about um, human partrition and pregnancy. One of the main enzymes in pregnancy is actually the result of a retrovirus. Um, it's the retrovirus is what allows the placenta to invade the, the uterine lining. One of the main enzymes involved in that is actually we caught it from a retrovirus back when we were in the, you know, chimps or whatever. But yeah, so only a certain group of mammals have it because that's it hit before their common ancestor. But then everyone else has a different method of partition. So it's kind of interesting. Sounds like a good science blast one of these days. Yeah, could be. I could talk about it. But um, it's actually kind of old. It's from like the the late 90s. I didn't even know it. it was just a random piece of information. But yeah, the poster session was great. We had a good time. Um, it was it was my lab, so there was booze involved. Um, a lot of booze. Uh, the bartender hit on Craig. That was kind of entertaining. Um, and that was it. Sounds good. Yeah, we got lots of pictures. Well, welcome back. Welcome back. What about oh, okay, one more, one more silly, short, quick story. Since I'm occupying, it's my week. I'm going to occupy it. Um, the Coliseum is actually, what you see is all the brickwork is not actually real. It's not the original Coliseum. It was put there in the 1800s because the original Coliseum was built out of like limestone. It basically just dissolved. <laughs> um, if you look at, like they have bricks and things from the original, they're all very rounded off. Because, you know, it's so easy to dissolve limestone. Acid rain! Basically, and it's literally, it's on a street corner. So it has traffic on both sides of it. All those all those nitric oxides and stuff. Yeah, no, seriously. So, And if you look at the very, very top, you can see where the brickwork stops, and there's white stone. Because the original Coliseum was white. And so there's white stone all Why the way around the white? top. Because that's the color the bricks were. I don't know. Okay, got it. As opposed to red. I don't know. Whatever. But it was really cool. I loved it. Awesome. The whole thing was awesome. Um, you I'll two? post some pictures on the website. Delbert, Carolina, anything special? Should we push on? You guys tell Let's me. Go on. Push on. Delbert? I got nothing. <laughs> oh, you, you, that's, that's what we call a Bach in, uh, in science. You, yeah. <laughs> you raise the knee, you reach back, and then you drop the ball. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I was going to talk about the half marathon that destroyed me yesterday, but we are, we are running late. So, uh, you guys won't get to hear my woes, although I am, I am feeling miserable today. Good times. Okay. What do we do after this? What's happening now? I know. It's I think happen. it's time for science blast. I don't know if we should do that every week. Having having done that now for myself, I have to I have to say it's pretty demeaning. It is demeaning. <laughs> yeah, I know. Thank you. It feels, Thank you, it feels like part of my soul has just been ripped out and if left laying on the floor. If you're confused by what's happening right now, for the last 42 episodes at the beginning of Science Blast, we forced Dell under pain of being banished from the show that he has to do a pew. Today he put his foot down and the wonderful compromise where we were all going to do pews together. Yeah, and and I don't know how that worked out. It felt very poorly. uncomfortable. Yes. You guys are all going to have to take a shower right after this, which is what I always have to do, <laughs> just to wash the shame. All right. Well, with that, uh, let's let's push forward. Uh, Science Blast. Caroline, you've got a good one. Can we hear about it? Uh, sure. 
So there was an article that came out in Nature this week that explains how our sense of smell is tied to memory. Um, I'm pretty sure we've all experienced like a nostalgic smell. Maybe like, uh, for, for me, it's if I smell uh, eucalyptus spearmint massage oil at uh, Bath and Body Works, I just want to throw up because <laughs> it reminds me of like unpleasant people uh, in my past. Did you used oh, to work do, at Bath and Body Works? Yeah. No, no, terrible memories. But, um, you know, on the other hand, the smell of like Polish sausage brings me back to like Easter mornings back in my childhood. Um, so so basically everybody can relate to this, I would think, I would hope. Yeah. Uh, hopefully I'm not the only one like that. <laughs> Are we just going to let her just completely gloss over that? I, I suppose. We're running late. We'll come back to this, Carolina. Oh, no. Thank God. Okay. <laughs> Um, so, so basically scientists, um, created a study on rats to figure out what exactly happens in the brain when, uh, you smell something and it is connected to your memory. So researchers designed a maze for rats and they had the rats, um, they would see a hole and they would poke their nose into it. And when poking into the hole, the rat was presented with one of two different smells. One smell would tell the rat that the food was found in a food cup that's on the left behind the rat. And then the other smell would tell it that there was food in the cup on the right behind the rat. Uh, the rat would eventually learn which smell would lead to the reward and where. And after about three weeks of training, the rats chose correctly more than 85% of the time um, on the trials. And then in order to see what was happening inside the brain, um, 16 different electrode pairs were inserted into the hippocampus in different areas and in different areas of the entorhinal con uh, cortex. The entorhinal cortex is basically like the part of the brain that's responsible for uh, sense of smell. Um, and so after the associations between smell and place were established, the researchers would, were able to see a pattern of uh, brainwave activity. And basically what they saw is that there's a burst of activity at about uh, 20, hertz, uh, 20 hertz waves in a spe specific connection uh, in neurons in the, in the entorhinal cortex and also in a specific area of the hippocampus. Um, and then there was not um, there was not a response like that in other connections. So this is specific huh. to smell. So they've kind of known that this happens, but now they understand kind of why and exactly what's going on. So it's pretty interesting that it's like a neuron vibration that's connecting these two very different areas of the brain to connect the sense of smell to memory. That's pretty sweet. That's awesome. The uh, uh, fun fact: uh, hippocampus, which is responsible for long-term memory. I know that because a million years ago, when I was an undergraduate in psychology, the teacher said, if you saw a hippo running across campus, you certainly would never forget it, would you? And to this day, I remember that's what the hippocampus does. Good wow. story. Wow. You know, it's, it's for gems like that that people turn into the beta Maybe. sandwich. Maybe one podcast. person will get one more point on their MCAT somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that little fun fact. <laughs> I feel like what? after the pew is the only reason that doesn't feel shameful. <laughs> wow. Man. What about I you? Guess it, okay. I, guess if you, I guess if you want to remember the uh, entorhinal cortex, you can think of a rhino having a large nose. Ooh. There you go. So if you're studying the brain, <laughs> you need some mnemonics. Yeah, we are yes. here for you. Yeah. <laughs> you're welcome. Send us your mnemonic quandaries and we will come up with something for you. Delbert, you have a story? I do. So, cheap microscopes. How cool would it be if you were in sub-Saharan Africa, if you were able to pull up the local water source, a sample of the local water source, and see what sort of parasites are in that? Now, do you guys work with microscopes in your lab? Yeah. Time to stand. Yeah. And Christian, or Carolina, I know that we did in the Baker lab as well, so... The, those scopes are usually pretty big, unwieldy. Like if you had to truck it around your Jeep out in the Sahara, it would be a little tough. But now, thanks to a Manu Prakash from Stanford University, we can now get microscopes made from sheets of paper. And so he's designed this microscope. It's printed on A4 size sheets of paper. They're polymer coated, so they'll resist... Uh, moisture and whatnot and last a little bit longer a4 and there's it's just an eight by ten basically yeah. yeah okay and there are there aren't even written instructions on it it's it's kind of neat we can post a link to it but there's a uh it's a colored 
kind of like colored paper that just shows you what to do. So there aren't even written instructions. Anyway, you, there's perforations. You rip it apart. You put it back together. Then there is a small spherical lens that's made out of glass, essentially, an LED, a watch battery, and then just a little bit of uh, copper tape to make a circuit. You put it all in there, and you can now see down to the scale of less than a micron. And guess wow. how much this guess how much this costs? Ten thousand dollars. Less than a buck. Whoa. What? That's awesome. Wait, weighs less than ten grams, fit in your pockets, no external power, and you can it's compatible with standard microscope slides. So definitely like the number wow. one impact that the article from The Economist points out is that it can be used as a diagnostic tool for tropical diseases. And so there are different types of parasites that can cause malaria. So now um, somebody in the field can quickly s diagnose that and uh, offer treatment. That's insane. That's nice. so cool. Yeah. I mean, it's working for a uh, biomedical device manufacturer that I do. Uh, it's kind of scary, but uh, nonetheless, very much approve of it and can't cool. wait to see what else they can do with paper. Heck yeah. Sweet. That's Science Blast. We're just trucking right along here. Dell's got me scared. For those of you who don't know and aren't seeing this live because we don't record it like this, Dell continually updates us on time, and it's like a, uh, it's like a, it's like a clock ticking down, like on death row. You're like, oh my god, he said 15 minutes. I better move on right now. But it's very effective. So we're and as on. any listener to the podcast, first time or not, you'll see the diary of the mouth that Scott Barnett can demonstrate <laughs> time to time. So it goes on. No doubt, man. Thank me you, for my duty. So you, is this when you, you tell a story about Scott taking over my my meat segment to where I was doing the main segment of the podcast and he talked at least <laughs> twice as much as I did. At least twice. Oh, you people. You'll get a witness it firsthand because I'm doing the last segment. So I'll oh, show you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of which, we probably should move on to the meat of the sandwich. Wait, 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 wait. Before we do, we have a promotional consideration for the next segment. Um, you know, I worked really hard to get this, Scott, so that we can get more money, so that we can I, uh, I all would... continue Beta Sandwich Science Podcast. Yes. And I'd like you to remind our faithful listeners what this segment, next segment, is brought to them by. This next segment, <laughs> I didn't even like say it, it wasn't even English. That's Medium Condila Mosatara. Arriba! This next segment is brought to you by Brazilian insects, in which. Can't even do this. Go, go, just okay. roll with it, man. Roll with it. Brazilian insects, where a, a, one of the female with the females of the species <laughs> has a penis, and the males have a vagina. Their mating can last up to forty to seventy hours, thanks to the female's inflatable spiny penis. More next week. Tune in. <laughs> Sounds Which like not true. Yeah, we need um. Seems we need to tighten that up next time. I need to go ahead and So maybe we just go back and edit it this time. Uh, you know, going from female penis into the meat of the sandwich, I think it's appropriate. It is appropriate. And uh, my final lead into the meat of the sandwich, Christian, of course, we talked about is we talk about Ebola. The second thing this is brought to you by is the Pasture Institute, which just uh, lost twenty three hundred vials of uh, vials containing SARS peptides. So. Yay for losing viruses. And uh, if you are completely 100% un – no, this is important. If you're completely 100% unaware with viruses and you want a primer going into this, Christian, I'm sure, will do a great background. There's a wonderful link in the show notes about how viruses make you sick. It's all with cartoons, and it's if it's built – it's meant for the non-scientists. So uh, give that a look in the show notes, and you'll, you'll have a nice primer and then come back and listen to this next segment. With that, let's move on to the meat of the sandwich. Here I am, um, back on the podcast after like six months. Um, <laughs> it's been too long. It has been a while. It's been like three weeks, which is a long time for me. Anyways, um, so what I want to talk about is the Ebola virus. And if you can imagine yourself sitting in a village in some strange country in the center of Africa that I can't name because I'm terrible at geography, um, and you're sitting there and you're sweating, but you're dehydrated, and bruises are appearing on your skin and you're just feeling like death warmed over 
and then imagine two or three days later, you're actually dead. Um, this is kind of what happens to people who catch the Ebola virus. Um, the Ebola virus first outbreak was um, internationally recognized in 1995, but there were actually um, cases of it that were reported as far back as the 70s. So this thing's been around for a little while, but not all that long. Um, it's named the Ebola virus after the Ebola River, which was originally thought to be near the, the Zaire, but it's not. So it was kind of a misnomer. Um, but it's a, it comes from monkeys is where it originally comes from. And the, the way it passed into humans was somebody played with the guts of an infected monkey. Um, and it, yeah, it sounds kind of gross, but if you think about the fact that, you know, someone could get attacked by one and if it's, if you stab the monkey or something happens and there's, you know, blood and loss of life, um, very easy for something like that to happen and have the virus jump. It's not a sexually transmitted disease, so nobody get all sicko on me. But, um, <laughs> well, I mean, monkeys are, are bush meat. They're widely eaten in Africa. It's like, yeah. it's not, not a big deal. You and know that's I mean? a guaranteed infection. Right. If you eat an infected monkey. And with a human, it's easy to tell when a human's infected because, you know, they're, they're dying. But with a, with a monkey, it's not always, you know, they're not always going to be like, hey, wait a minute, man, I'm infected. So, um, Scott said that we probably do a primer on viruses, and this is pretty simple. Um, viruses are tiny little packets of DNA or RNA, any nucleic acid. I have a question. And, yes. Are they considered living? That is not a question that has an answer. <laughs> because they replic they do a lot of the things that life does, but they usually require a host to do it. So the question is, are they alive? Yes, they replicate. Yes, they you know evolve, they propagate themselves. They do a lot of the things that life does, but they're a unique type of life. That would be my answer. Yes, but they're a unique type. Um, they're viruses. And so viruses cannot replicate on their own. If you have a a pile of viruses laying on the ground, they're not going to do much. Um, because what they do is they've stripped away their genomes. This is one theory. They've stripped away their genomes, and they only have the most basic essential things that they need to replicate themselves, and they steal the rest of that from whatever cell they infect. So what happens is viruses get into your cells, and they start host hijacking the machinery of replication and making more of themselves and spitting them out and infecting more cells and so on and so on. Um, in the case of Ebola, it's a it's a, called a retrovirus, and it's an RNA, which means that it's not using DNA, it's using RNA. And it has a single-stranded RNA genome that's negative sense, which is jargon for it codes the opposite of what it needs to code, so that when it's turned into DNA in your cells, it codes correctly. Because they're... Negative, negative is, sense? Is that the same as not. reverse sense? No, it's the... It's the um, the opposite strand of the coding sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, I thought that was reverse sense. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's been a long yeah. time since I've done yeah. that. Basically, DNA is a zipper, and you open it up, and it reads only one side of that usually. Um, in this case, it would be the opposite unread strand that would match the RNA. And when it converts it into DNA, the first thing it does, it turns that negative sense into the positive coding strand. Um, and it needs an enzyme called reverse transcriptase to do that. Reverse transcriptase is one of the main, the main central ideas behind a retrovirus because humans don't turn RNA into DNA pretty much ever. Um, but viruses have to do it if they use RNA as their genome. And a lot of antiviral drugs, which we'll talk a little bit about that later, a lot of antiviral drugs target reverse transcriptase because it doesn't actually affect human physiology, but it can knock down the virus's ability to replicate. Um, if you've ever heard of Valtrex, Valtrex, um, I believe, is a... I have no idea what you're talking about. Inhibitor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> people take it for cold sores, and you don't have to have genital herpes to be taken Valtrex. But, but the point is that there are, a lot of, there are several medications that, that they use for viruses that are that target reverse transcriptase. So um, does the virus introduce the reverse transcriptase? Yes. 
Okay. Yes, all RNA sent all RNA genome viruses code for reverse transcriptase. So it or goes, else they wouldn't get very far. It jumps into the cell. It's got RNA genome. It also brings along a nice little RNA transcriptase to bring it back to DNA, and then it uses right. everything in the host cell after that, right? Correct. Cool. Yes. Some of them permanently write themselves into your chromosomes. Some of them don't. It, there's like 15 different classes of viruses, and I don't want to get into that because no one cares. But um, basically, it create it can, it has to create DNA out of its RNA before it can do anything. Um, the Ebola virus is actually 10 times as large as HIV, which, as Scott said, they're already really, really small. But um, it's huge. The Ebola virus is a large virus. It's a um, it's kind of an interesting shaped virus, and I'll talk about that in a sec. Um, it has an outer layer of human cell membrane because of the way it leaves the cell, it grabs the membrane as it goes and sort of envelops itself in that membrane. Um, inside that membrane, it has a matrix layer of proteins. These are the VP40 proteins. There's only 13 proteins that this virus codes for. Huh. I'm lying. It's not 13. It's seven. <laughs> yes, I knew it was even <laughs> Good one. That. Yeah. You got us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, there's only seven structural proteins that this virus codes for, which is really small if you think about the fact that humans code like 30,000 genes or whatever. Um, but it has an outer layer of human cell membrane, an inner layer of matrix, and then inside of that, there is another layer of protein that surrounds the RNA um, genome. And it codes for reverse transcriptase, and that's about it. Um, everything else is kind of minor in terms of its effectiveness for infection. Um, so, so how does it kill you? Well, there, here we are. The next part I want to talk about is what it does to you. <laughs> so it infects um, capillary endothelium cells, which means it infects the blood vessels. Um, basically, it infects areas of your blood vessels. And some immune cells can also be infected, but basically it's after the blood, the blood vessels. Um, and the symptoms of infection are, like I mentioned earlier, bruising, red, pinpoint red rashes all over, dehydration, um, all kinds of different things that indicate that you are bleeding under the skin. You have internal bleeding. And that is because the Ebola virus's main goal is to liquefy your internal organs by basically rupturing them and causing them to bleed out. So... I like to call it the exploding organ virus, but <laughs> the truth is it's really just causing all of your organs to hemorrhage internally. Um, it's, so it gives you what's called hemorrhagic fever. Um, you're, you have a fever from being infected, you're dehydrated, and you have a ridiculous amount of bleeding internally. Um, it has a, there's a couple of subtypes of Ebola, but the main subtype, that's the main fatal subtype, is fatal about 90% of the time. That means 90% of the time if you have medical care. So 90%, you have a 10% chance of survival if you have great medical care. Mm. So basically, it's brutal. Um, and that actually works against it in terms of being a virus, and we'll talk about that a little later. But... Of the two main subtypes that I could come across, one of them has a mortality rate of 70%, and then the other one is 90 So um, Neither is great. Yeah, no, it's bad. Yeah. Right. Um, basically, they treat patients for the symptoms, but there's no vaccine. And we talked a little bit about antiretroviral drugs and things like that. They don't have any of those that work on these. Um, when I say that it has a reverse transcriptase enzyme, every bacteria or viral um, genome produces a slightly different version of that enzyme. It does the same job, but it looks different. So even though one drug, like, will take care of the herpes virus, that same drug won't necessarily affect other viruses because their reverse transcriptase will look different, or it won't affect it. So as far as Ebola goes, we don't have anything to do. We just, they hydrate you, they try to keep you from bleeding out, and that's it. And then, you know, you close your eyes and hope for the best. And the reason that we're bringing all of this up is because now there is a huge outbreak of Ebola in Guinea and Liberia. I believe that's how that's pronounced. I suck at pronunciation. Um, but as of April 16, 2014, 
there's a total of 197 confirmed cases and 122 death um, deaths so far. 101 of those cases have been confirmed by laboratory testing, and 124 healthcare workers um, have been infected, and 13 of them have died so far. Um, most of these are the um, Zaire Ebola virus, which is the, basically the only um, Ebola virus that exists, and it's the bad one. It's, so it's been a while since I looked at this stuff. Did you come across anything called Marburg? Um, Marburg. I feel like it's a different strain of it. Don't worry about it. I wasn't sure if, no, you, if you pulled it. it, up. it no. Oh, I know what you're talking about. The Marburg is just a different. It's from the same family. Um, it's where it was both, identified, right? Isn't that how these things work, where the out, outbreak started or whatever? Ebola, yeah. The, the trick is Ebola, When it, if you looked at it under a microscope, it would look like a thread. Uh-huh. Um, it's filamentous, and it's so it's part of the same family as the Marburg viruses. They're filoviridae or whatever. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. That's, that's why they're connected. They aren't really connected in any other way than just they're part of the same family, um, which is kind of in the middle, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family. Yeah. So... Right now, this outbreak is going on, and there's a lot of people that are worried about it. And so I've basically encountered a lot of people recently who have been asking me, oh, you know, it's going to come across the ocean. It's going to kill us all, and blah, 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 blah. And there's a couple of reasons why that's not necessarily true. Um, We are working on a vaccine. Um, Researchers at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia have produced an Ebola vaccine that works in – primates and mice but they haven't tested it in humans yet which anyone who knows the way drugs work that means it's years away um it actually cures both rabies and ebola or it vaccinates against both rabies and ebola that's a two um, bird with one stone yeah, scenario there and not what the heck um they've so they've done it in animal models um let's see here matthias schnell from the Jefferson Vaccine Center said, I think we've demonstrated it is efficient in animal models, and now we have to produce a vaccine that would be appropriate for humans, which means it's years and years away. But so the first step is being taken. They are working on vaccines for this. And the other the other problem with the Ebola virus making its way to America or really anywhere else that requires a plane flight is um, that the virus has really dramatic symptoms, and you cannot spread the virus until you have those symptoms. So people aren't walking around all over the place with Ebola and don't know it. If they have it and they're infective, they know it. You also have to touch their in, their internal organs. So <laughs> it makes it difficult to spread. Now, I'm sure Wait, at least one... Then how does it get spread over there? I thought it was mucus. I thought you could cough on someone. Um, I don't think... Coughing might do it, but but we're on our way there. So 123 people all were like like poking each other's intestines. But here here's the thing. Let me clarify. Let me clarify. You cannot get it if they show no symptoms unless you touch their internal organs. Asymptomatic, hard to transmit. Unless they're bleeding out visibly and showing signs, you'd have to go inside them and touch their internal organs to get it. So it isn't the disease that hides. Like, there could be 700 people in a mile radius of you who have HIV, and how would you tell? Right. Can they infect you with it? Absolutely. Just through sexual contact. If you had sex with someone who had Ebola and they weren't showing symptoms, you would not get it. Got it. So um, people probably have, have heard of Stephen King's book, The Stand. It's like one of the famous apocalyptic things. And there was a disease in that that just ran rampant and killed everybody really fast. Um, there is a sort of a problem with that model, though, and Ebola has some of those problems as well. It kills too quickly and too efficiently to spread through a population. In other words, like HIV is one of the most brilliant viruses in terms of the way it works. It spreads through a mechanism that people can't keep their hands off of, and it doesn't kill you right away. It gives you years to replicate and spread the virus. Ebola doesn't. It gives you hours. Yeah. So if I have – if someone has HIV – I want to say I do because I don't, but it freak me out for a second. Um, but if someone has HIV, 
they can spread it to hundreds of people before they even know they have it. And then all of those hundreds of people can do the same thing. With Ebola, one person gets it, they're like, oh, I feel like crap. They're dead. Yeah. yeah. So it, it isn't going to just like spread like wildfire, like a zombie invasion or whatever, because it, it's actually too good at what it does. Um, Doesn't so make it any less scary. It is scary. I mean, let's be honest. Any virus that liquefies your internal organs is inherently scary. Yeah. Um, but in terms of it being a, a dramatic health risk for America, this is why you don't see a lot of people talking about it and a lot of news reports on it. It's just sort of on the, the other part of the news. Because it's really unlikely for it to get across the ocean. And if it did, the first few people who were infected would end up in the hospital relatively quickly, and they would not have a lot of time to spread it. Yeah. Um, and w one thing that Scott mentioned is, you know, well, how did, you know, people get infected with it then if it's so hard to spread? The majority of cases are spread between people and the people who are caring for them. So people who are coming into constant contact with someone who's showing symptoms are the ones who end up catching it. Moral so of the story. Like through a mall. Take care of it. someone with Ebola. Yeah. Or, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a little broader with that. If someone's sick, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Just call in sick to work. Don't That's come to work. That's my philosophy. You're... Awesome. I don't know how many times I say it on this show, but poor Dharma. <laughs> <laughs> if you you say it so much that it's be, I'm beginning to question it. I, uh, so um, I will say uh, one of the high one of the books I read in high school that absolutely mortified me and terrified me was a book by Richard Preston called The Hot Zone. Uh, yeah. It's about I believe it's it is fictional, uh, but it's uh, all the science in it is accurate, and uh, I've talked about it a couple times in the show. But uh, it is such a good read about what it's like to have Ebola, to die of Ebola, to transmit it is a very fascinating book. Almost like a, um, what do you call those, um, the Robert Langdon books, the, uh, I don't know, uh, Angels and Demons, anyone? Dan, Dan, Brown. Dan Brown, thank you. It's almost like a down, Dan Brown book, but without, uh, with, uh, with Ebola. Without so. him making stuff up, but <laughs> uh, don't get me started. So, all right. Uh, you, did you have anything else? Did you, did you I need did to take not. it home? That's, there's enough organs liquefied and, <laughs> and whatever for, for my day. Okay. So, yeah. Um, well, we're just going to push right along then. Cause we only have 10 minutes left and I'm pretty sure I can do it in 10 minutes. So I'm going to do back of the box. Fluoride, castoreum, monosodium glutamate, propalmitic acid, sodium dodecyl sulfate. Welcome to the back of the box, where Scott explains the obscure and interesting chemicals we put in and on our bodies. Yay! Yay! Amanita, phalloides. Can anyone identify what I just said? I don't know if I should be offended or not. Um, Amanita, that's a mushroom, I think. Are you being serious? I think so, yeah. Dell gets the prize! Boom! <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, on this segment, I'm going to give a tip, a tip of the cap to the death cap. <laughs> Good one, Barnett. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> like how you applaud yourself. Thank you. You don't even use a different voice. <laughs> She'd be like, "Good one, Barnett." Like good somebody one. else just jumped into the podcast, but the also, no, it's just you. Oh, good job, Barnett. <laughs> so, um, uh, I posted this on Facebook, my personal Facebook page. I had this. I I'm growing all these plants the starter plants for when it gets warm enough i can put them all outside and i saw this random random mushroom growing out of it this really crazy looking mushroom and i was like oh man like i have to like wash my hands after touching this and i'm like these things are really bad you know normally our back of the boxes are like you know triscolin or things that we're eating or things that an ingredient list on the back of your thing what's a triglyceride something like that right this is something you can eat, and so that's ultimately what brings it into this segment back of the box here. Uh, I also remember a story I read back in 2012 where a chef and his assistant were in Canberra, which is like Washington, D.C. of Australia. They went out, they picked up some mushrooms they thought were straw mushrooms, came back, cooked them up, ate them, and uh, about a week later they were dead. 
because <laughs> they were eating the death cap. So I'm like, this is really cool. The, what's happening? Why does this make this? Why is this poison so deadly? So I decided to to look into it and see if you eat it, what why it actually kills you. So uh, a little background about 50 to 100 fatal cases reported every year in Western U.S. Western Europe in the U.S. Um, lethal dose is very low. It's actually 0.1 migs per kilogram per body weight. And what that means that if you're an adult, you need about half of a mushroom to potentially kill you. Now, if you remember a while back, we talked about ricin from the Breaking Bad episode. That's quite a bit more potent. You need about five times more than that. Uh, with ricin, you need, if you're like a 150-pound adult, you need about 1.5 milligrams, which is just like the tiniest bit to actually kill you. This one, you need about half a mushroom. So still a horrendously deadly poison. And I'm going to tell you why it's so deadly and why you should be scared to death of it. So biochemistry, we're, this is a biochemical type show. Let's talk about that for a little bit. So what makes these little guys so nasty? The term is uh, it's a hepatotoxin, hepata being from your liver. More specifically, the type of toxin itself is an amoxitoxin. It's a bicyclic octopeptide, comes in alpha and beta subtypes with the beta variant being much more toxic. If you like that biochemical stuff, don't worry. We're going to swing around to being a lot less technical in a minute. Don't turn it off. Um so, amatotoxins are extremely potent selective inhibitors of RNA polymerase 2, which kind of ties back into Christians a little bit here. RNA polymerase is a vital enzyme, and it actually is a precursor and important um, aspect of, of making messenger RNA, microRNAs, small nuclear RNAs, snRNAs. So, without these, your cells pretty quickly stop working and die, which de facto you die. That's, that's just what happens. So um, so what I want to do right now is I want to walk you through a scenario Whereas, if you were this chef and this assistant or if it was you in your backyard and you happened to oh so innocently pick a mushroom and decide to eat it and it happened to be a death cap, what would actually happen? A lot of this comes from a review article. I like to, to cite my sources here. It's called Acute Liver Failure Caused by Amarita Phylloides Poisoning in the International Journal of Hepatology. It's a great little article. Um, I'm basically restating a lot of what they say in the article, but I'm trying to make the content a bit more digestible. <laughs> I did it again. I don't know. I, wow. I can go all night. Oh my God. <laughs> Just bat wow. a thousand, Barnett. <laughs> okay. All right. So you go into a forest, you see a nice little mushroom and you think, Hey, wouldn't that be a good idea to eat this thing? You know? So you go home, you chop it up, you cook it in some stir fry, you decide that rather than eat it, you're just going to put it in the fridge overnight because you decided you wanted to go eat out that night, then you come back the next day. So why all this background? The problem is that uh, amylotoxins or amatoxins, excuse me, are very resistant to both heat, high heat and cold. So the fact that you stir fry it, you cook it, you're not going to ruin these peptides. They're very robust. The fact that you put it in the fridge or even the freezer for a certain period of time, they don't care. They're still going to be every bit as toxic to you. That certainly increases the lethality of this thing here. So you go ahead and eat it. Goes into your stomach. The very first thing that happens is what's called the lag phase. And as uh, these toxins are not irritating by themselves, this initial phase is characterized by really the absence of any symptoms whatsoever. You eat your, your stir fry. It was delicious. You go to bed and you're, you're, you're happy as a clam. Look at me. I saved $3. I didn't go to the grocery store and buy some mushrooms. I went and picked my own. Good for you. So the incubation time goes from six, anywhere from 6 to 40 hours with an average of about 10 hours or so. So if we go back to the scenario where we saved it overnight, we decided to eat it for breakfast, right about dinner that time, that same night, you're not feeling so hot. You've now entered what is known as the gastrointestinal phase. This phase is characterized by nausea, vomiting, cramping, <coughs> abdominal pain, severe uh, secretory diarrhea, which I would argue, is there another kind? Um, is there a non-secretory diarrhea? I Wait, is secretory diarrhea where it just like leaks out of you involuntarily? Ew. That, oh, like a, like, a, like a faucet you couldn't turn off? Yeah, way? yeah, like a drippy faucet. I think it's like sometimes you either agree to the diarrhea or you don't. And when you don't, that's secretory. <laughs> Learning so much. So. And it gets worse because both the diarrhea and vomiting become grossly bloody. Not gross as in disgusting, but it means visible by the eye. That's a medical term, grossly. So they become grossly bloody. The gastronomic phase may be very severe. And it results in these big acid-base disturbances in your stomach, electrolyte abnormalities, hypoglycemia, dehydration, hypotension, all kinds of nasty stuff. You basically feel like crud, right? 
This will last like 12 to 24 hours. So you got up, you ate it, you felt great, you're happy. By dinner, you're not feeling good. You think you ate something bad. That lasts for 12 to 24 hours. Um, now here's the kicker. After a few hours of this misery, you seem to be clinically improving. There's corrections in dehydration often. You stop pooping yourself. Uh, everything seems very good. As a matter of fact, even if you had a liver or kidney function test, these are normally completely normal at this point in the illness. Uh, if the association, um, if, if uh, doctors don't make an association with to toxic mushrooms, patients may actually be erroneously diagnosed with just gastroenteritis or something, discharged from the hospital, sent off, good luck, you're fine. But of course, you ate the death cap, so you're not all right. Everything up to this point are actually caused by not the amatoxins we talked about. These are f uh, f uh, f uh, the toxins, excuse me. Um, these stimulate polymerization, polymerization of G-actin, F-actin. Uh, I work with these all the time. Uh, F-actin is these, these are these like, uh, these cause the severe abdominal pain you're thinking about because the F-actin is like ropes in your intestinal smooth muscle and they form these, these matrices inside your cell and they allow those cells to tightly contract and not relax. So that's where you get that really tight pain in your stomach is from these things. But it turns out that phallotoxins are, uh, while highly toxic to the liver, it's completely irrelevant because they're not absorbed from the from the uh, intestine into your body. So the phallotoxins give you that initial. I feel like crap. I have a lot of crap, and I I need to I need to go. But it's the amylotoxins that are actually going to cause the real trouble here in a second. So what's happening is that the amylotoxins are being in, uh, absorbed through the intestinal epithelium, and they bind very weakly to something called serum proteins, which are just proteins in your blood themselves. So now we're into the second day of your unfortunate decision to eat these mushrooms. You've been released from the hospital and you head home. Uh, had they kept you a little bit longer, the effect of the toxins that are damaging your liver and your kidneys could be detected by a liver enzyme test, but they've decided to send you home, so they didn't. Last phase, acute liver failure. It's as bad as it sounds. In this, <laughs> in this last phase, these uh, uh, transaminases, which are it's an enzyme, we won't go into the details here. They rise dramatically, and these are these enzyme tests. We can say it's in your serum. They realize that your 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 liver uh, hepatocytes are, are leaching these things because they're dying. And renal failure is also a big problem here. If you were on a game show where you list the uh, symptoms, uh, it would sound something like this. Bob, tell them what they've won. Your death calf adventure has left you with hyperbilibermia, <laughs> coagulopathy, hypoglycemia, acidosis, hepatic encephalopathy, and uh, hepatorenal syndrome. <laughs> That's my... Mm, sounds yummy. Yummy. But don't worry about all those pretentious medical words, which I mispronounced most of them. Uh, all you need to know is that you've got multi-organ failure and you're going to die. So that's it. No, wow. no, I'm just kidding. There's a little more. <laughs> so, in contrast to those paper, into those people with these favorable uh, uh, or with these really bad symptoms, some people actually miraculously get better and they have a favorable outcome. They have a rapid, rapid, rapid improvement of liver function test. And I guess if you just are below the threshold, you actually may have some liver damage. You may have some renal issues, but you actually can recover from it. But if you've went ahead and made yourself a mushroom salad with 12 of these things, you better make start making some phone calls to loved ones, right? There's there's not a lot. You don't got a lot of time here. So uh, treatment, that's my very last thing here, and we'll finish up here. Not a lot of treatment options. It's kind of like Ebola, but a little bit better. They have oral detoxification. This is where they give you tons of activated charcoal. They make you, 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 you ingest the activated charcoal. Um, and this event's re reabsorption of the toxins due to they've got this uh, enterohepatic circulation thing going on. But there's actually not a lot of evidence to show this has a big clinical outcome. So they're going to make you eat a bunch of charcoal, and it's not even probably going to help you. There's chemotherapy, not the kind of chemotherapy you're thinking about for cancer. This is uh, chemicals, as in chemical therapy. Uh, they have something called psilobin, which is actually an extract from milk thistle. And it's a water-soluble derivative and... Um, it competes with amylotoxins for their transmembrane transport into the cells. And so it, it prevents a penetration of the cells. Uh, a less fancy way of that saying is that it will it, it saturates all those outside of the cell, your, your liver cells. Um, and so that the, 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 the poison, the amylotoxins going around your body, they, there's nowhere for them to dock on the, on the liver cells so they can be absorbed. So it's this competitive inhibition here in this case. So, um, 
There's that, not terribly effective as well. Your very last resort, if you eat a whole bunch of these mushrooms, is to hope that someone would be so kind as to lend you their liver indefinitely. That's right, <laughs> liver transplant. These can work well, but as you might imagine, livers are pretty high, in pretty high demand, and chances are that someone of having your blood type, as well as having, oh, having just died in the last few hours, uh, is pretty low. So what can I say? Vegas odds are not good of you getting a liver if you happen to eat these things. So um, you, it, it all ends in acute liver failure, which they call ALF, which I find is hilarious because everyone knows ALF is an alien life form. Gordon Shumway, best show of the planet, 80s. I will bet you $100,000 that maybe, maybe 0.01% of our listenership, which is actually less than one person, yeah. would be <laughs> – would know what ALF is. Uh, well, I'm going to – I'm done here, so we don't have to worry about going over. I'm just going to use what uh, <laughs> what's his name is um, uh, the guy who makes um, Family Guy, Seth MacFarlane. Seth MacFarlane. They I saw an interview with him, and they have a series of jokes called One Percenters, uh, which they know that 99 percent of the people won't get one percent will, uh, but they throw them into the show Ooh. because they feel that's part of the magic. So this is part of the magic, Christian. All right, we're not gonna we're not gonna bow to the lowest common denominator. I love Alf. That's what I'm trying to say. Wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> okay. So that's that. You don't want to eat a death cap. Uh, your liver's going to crap out on you, uh, ironically, after you crap out on yourself. And um, <laughs> <laughs> That was funny. There you go. And, was, um, actual that's my back of the box. So, uh, <laughs> well done. It is. And uh, I, I know Dell's going to take us home here, but he never covers these things. And since we may have new listeners on the show – Go to iTunes. Please rate us if you like this show. It's it's how we get paid. We get paid in your accolades. And they, Dell always says, oh, just put anything. Even if you think it sucks, put it on there. I say, F you. Don't put it on there if you think it sucks. We're working hard at this thing. Put nice comments or don't put anything at all. Didn't your mother teach you better than that? So put nice comments about us. And um, we're on uh, we're on the Twitter machine at Beta Sandwich. We're as we said we're on Facebook uh, slash Beta Sandwich Podcast. So please please follow us. And of course you can go to iTunes and, and follow us on there and everything. So that's what I got. Dell, are you gonna do your thing? You gonna make us all so happy? Good news! You have been the recipient of another fantastic episode of the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast. To prove that we listen to you when you listen to us, we gave a shout-out to Aaron Miller for his Facebook link. Where's Waldo? Who cares? Where's Christian? He's back on the show and talking about how he couldn't get a drink in Italy. And if you want to know how you can forget that, plug your nose. But not before you print that microscope. Speaking of things to forget, Ebola, large virus, liquefied organs, death caps, and secretory diarrhea. But if there is one thing you will remember thanks to this show is a hippo running across campus. Tune in next week for your own exam-passing mnemonic. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Yay! To, to be fair, Christian had no problem finding something to drink in Italy. <laughs> it just wasn't water. <laughs> it just it, it was ninety percent water, but yeah. Yeah. Yes. So <laughs> Dell, beautiful as always. We love it. Fantastic. Yay. Good show. Bye everyone. Bye. Peace.